Church on the web at wagp.net. This is the Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Study and show yourself approved of God as a workman who is not ashamed, accurately dividing the word of truth. We welcome you this hour to the Bible Line. So glad we can be together for the next hour. And if you have a particular question as you've been studying God's Word or an issue that maybe you're facing in your life, feel free to pick up the phone. You can call us directly at 877-WAGP980. That's our toll-free number. Or locally, it's 843-525-1859. 1859, the 843 Exchange here in South Carolina. We have a lot of Georgia listeners and people who live stream us through the internet. Uh, you can also email us directly here into the studio. And the email address is TBL, that stands for the Bible Line at WAGP.net. Rick, as always, it's great to be here and it's exciting. Uh, to be back on the air, we were gone for a few weeks, and uh, last week with the hurricane and other issues, we're grateful we were spared here locally, and uh, we pray for our brethren, especially in the area of Newborn and some of those areas there, and even Fayetteville and Lumberton, who are struggling, and but churches are ministering and outreaching to people who need help. Amen, Pastor. And uh, we apologize if we sound a little weird. We had some equipment that went out on us and we're uh, uh, dealing with some new equipment. So we're going to be tweaking throughout the program. But let's go ahead and start with a, uh, a question that came in. Bonnie from Bluffton writes, I heard from a recent participant on your 2018 Israel tour that you told the group that the Ark of the Covenant had been found. Could you please share more information about this discovery? Thank you. Well, I, I didn't say that, but, uh, you know, sometimes by the time you get home uh, uh, that, you know, people in the United States hear one thing that I said. And I, I, I did say this. Let me share what I did say. Uh, Rick, I can't even hear myself with the headset. There we go. Uh, we are having some difficulties, and a lot of scratchiness in my headset. I hope it's coming through relatively clear there. With that said, um we do know that there is a group called the Temple Institute, and we visited there when we went to Israel last May. And by the way, we are going again, God willing, in September of 2019. And if you are interested in going, you can go online to either searchthescriptures.org or communitybiblechurch.us, and you can download the brochure and the registration. Last time we took two bus loads. We've made reservations for three, but there is a cutoff point at one at, at a particular uh, time in which if you don't fill three buses, they drop you to two. And the reason is because the demand is so high in Israel. Uh, there's approximately 300,000 people 
in Israel every month as tourists. So it's uh, it's huge, and the hotels are limited, and the number of people they can take at a particular site. But it's incredibly well orchestrated and computerized how they do that whole thing. But we will go again, God willing, to the Temple Institute. Uh, the Temple Institute is right there in the city of Jerusalem. It's uh, run by Orthodox Jewish people who have uh, basically completed stage one for the rebuilding of the temple. All of the uh, architectural plans are completed. You can see those. They're laid out there uh, for the rebuilding of the temple itself. They have remanufactured all of the temple garments. They have remanufactured all of the temple furniture with the exception of the Ark of the Covenant. Now, can I say I've seen it? Obviously not. No one can say that. But there are two credible Jewish rabbis who specifically have said that they have seen the Ark of the Covenant. Now, what I find interesting is that all of the temple furniture has been reproduced with the exception of the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, They obviously, if they had the original would see no need to reproduce another copy. They've made copies of everything with the exception of the Ark of the Covenant. Now, if there were some credible people who were broadcasting here in WAGP and they said, well, I experienced uh, so-and-so or I saw such-and-such, and they were credible and people of integrity, then you would probably conclude, oh, it must be true. Uh, I can trust that person's word. Well, two different Orthodox rabbis whose names won't mean anything to you, but um, they are of great uh, credibility and esteemed. Uh, Both are now dead, uh, but they have uh, said on two different occasions they saw the Ark of the Covenant independently of one another in the same location. And indeed, um, uh, they have revealed where precisely it is. And so when you go to the Temple Institute, they have not rebuilt it for that reason. They have not reconstructed an ark, not to mention if indeed the original ark is protected. Uh, and, and by the way, it was uh, when the temple was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar, uh, he came and eventually stole all of the articles and in turn, you know, destroyed the temple to the ground. And it was at that point that it appears the Ark of the Covenant was hidden. And so uh, where was it hidden? Again, these guys say um, they know there's another theory. There's some really wacko theories that I won't even mention, like the Irish theory is that it's the pot at the end of the rainbow and so forth. Uh, But there is a non-canonical book called Second Maccabees, And according to that book, uh, the prophet Jeremiah had it hidden in a cave on Mount Nebo where God met met Moses. But again, it's an unreliable book, and I would probably put much more strength in what these two credible Orthodox rabbis have said rather than what the book of 2 Maccabees has said because Maccabees is filled with all kinds of erroneous information like making atonement for a dead person. Uh, via monetary donations, praying for the dead, et cetera, et cetera, things that directly contradict previous revelation in what we know to be true from the words of Christ and his holy apostles. So um, with that said, it is pretty fascinating, though, just to consider that the temple will be rebuilt. There are people who think that way. 
if you've been with us in our study of Revelation, I showed a video clip during one of my sermons from Revelation 13 on May the 14th, uh, 2018, the 70th birthday of Israel, uh, specifically crowds going through the street saying, we will ascend to the temple uh, up on high that will be rebuilt. And so that is a dream, and it's more than a dream of Jewish people today. It is a fact that will happen because God will literally fulfill some a final prophecy during the time of the tribulation. It doesn't really even have to be started to the construction until uh, after the rapture of the churches, as long as it's done by the midpoint of the seven-year period. It certainly could begin before then, but it doesn't have to. Uh, and it may not begin, I suppose, until after the church is raptured and there is a, a one-world leader who makes a covenant with Israel and looks upon Israel at least falsely, for a period of three and a half years where he protects Israel. He's called the Antichrist and maybe allows her to rebuild the temple at that point. So these are really fascinating things for us as Christians to consider. Very good. 843-525-1859 if you have a question on today's Bible line. And a reminder that you can always hear the Bible line if you miss any part of it online at our website, wagp.net. And um, there's a a line for you to click on the Bible line, and you'll hear both uh, today's as well as any of the previous ones that we've ever done. Now, uh, our first live caller of the morning dictated their question, and they'd like to know what Scripture says about donating your body or your organs after death. Well, the Scripture doesn't forbade it by any uh, means, and there would be nothing wrong with it. In fact, it would be a great expression of giving to people, uh, you know, sometimes we use uh, biblical metaphors to describe spiritual truth and, uh, and sometimes non-biblical metaphors, but nonetheless, you know, we speak of, for instance, of the immaterial portion of man as the heart. May Christ richly dwell within your heart and so forth. Well, does Christ literally physically live in our heart? Well, no, we refer to that as the seat of the emotions, the seat of the will. And so, you know, if you have a heart transplant, does that mean if you got a heart of an unbeliever put in your body that you you lost your salvation? Of course not. So with that said, uh, this body will be transformed in the twinkling of an eye because Paul says this mortal must put on immortality and this perishable must put on that which is imperishable. And so the body we have right now, it will be raised up. And indeed, it's not a, um, a loss at the resurrection if you've given your kidneys, your heart, or your liver, or whatever, but your corneas, or other body parts that you donated to science, or for that matter, for a transplant. Obviously, that would be the case from statements that Jesus made. He, he said, in essence, it would be better for you to be a, a crippled saint going to heaven uh, than it would be to uh, be a healthy sinner going to hell when he uses the metaphor, if your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. He never uses something that has error in it. So my point is, is that uh, the body will be raised up. It will be raised up new. It will be resurrected. Uh, given enough time, it will turn to dust. 
And most people in the world today do not go through the sophisticated embalming process that we use in America. For instance, Jews are, ma- are buried within 24 hours before sundown of the next day. So like when um, the prime minister, uh, Rabin, uh, died in the middle of the night at 3 a.m., they did his funeral by sundown the next day. Day. So that's just how it works, and they don't prepare the body. So, you know, people in most parts of the world who are buried in the typical fashion, their body is just uh, turned to dust after a period of time, unlike maybe bodies here in America that are embalmed and so forth. So, good question. I appreciate it. So, if you uh, are an organ donor, it can be certainly a noble thing. Very good. 843-525-1859 if you have a question on today's Bible line. And we have a live caller standing by. Let's go to them now. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Good morning. Yes, thank you for calling. Yes. How can we help My today? My name is Alberto. I'm calling from uh, Savannah, Georgia. Okay. Yeah, I got a question. So I used to attend the Church of God Clean Tennessee organization for 10 years. And they teach that the only condition with a, a believer will not lose their salvation if they make a mistake or a boo-boo type of sin. Or any other type of sin, you will lose your salvation. So that, to me, is a heresy because King David, he planned the murder of the general. which He took his wife, and he planned it for a long time to have him be sent to the front of the battle so the other men will stay back so he generally get killed. So that's not a King David didn't lose his salvation. He just God restored his his uh, he didn't restore his salvation. He just restored his fellowship. So why did the Church of God Timothy Tennessee organization teach that the only condition when a person will not lose it is only if you make a mistake with a boo boo type sin. That's the only type of time that you won't lose it. So what do you think about that? Well, I I think they're in gross error, and I think you've concluded properly now. In fairness to them, what they would say in reference to David is that David repented and therefore his salvation was restored. But you're right, his salvation was not restored. It was his fellowship with God that was restored. Uh, The Bible would make a distinction between our relationship with God and our fellowship with God. Our relationship with God is something that's eternal. It cannot be lost. He that believes in me, John 6, 47, has eternal life, not will have. Most people think of eternal life as something way out there that you get when you die. But the Bible speaks of it with as a present tense possession. So if eternal life is something I can have today, the one who believes in me has right now eternal life, then it has to be more than simply a place. And it is more than a place. It's a relationship with God. Jesus said, this is eternal life. This is what it is. This is eternal life that they might know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. So eternal life is fellowship with the Lord. It's it's, uh, a relationship with God, knowing him. And that's only possible by being born again. Now, in a broad sense, all men know of God, of his existence. Even though they knew God, Paul will write, they did not honor him as God. Uh, They were foolish in their speculations. Their hearts were darkened. They knew of God's existence, but not in a saving way. There are, are no atheists, biblically speaking, though you know a small percentage of people in the world like to say that that's their label. They're atheistic or agnostic, but it's not true. They know there's a God through creation and conscience. 
but not everyone knows the Lord in a personal way, and that's only possible through the second birth. That was the promise of the new covenant in Jeremiah and Ezekiel, Hosea, that they all shall know me from the greatest of them to the least of them, because I'll put my spirit within them. When does that happen? Well, Ephesians 1 says, in him, in Christ, you also having listened to the message of salvation, the gospel, having believed, you are sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. So when you hear the message of truth, which the Bible defines in Ephesians 1, 13 and 14 is the gospel, then you are sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who's given as a pledge, as an earnest, as a down payment of the inheritance to come. In fact, uh, the scripture says in Ephesians 4.30 in the same book that you're sealed with the Holy Spirit unto or for the day of redemption. In other words, he comes inside of you and he's there. He's God's guarantee of the truth found in Philippians 1.6 that he who began a good work in you will complete it unto the day of Christ Jesus. Um, Paul, again, uses the same terminology in 2 Corinthians where the Holy Spirit is our earnest. He's our down payment. He's our guarantee. He's our promise that what God will complete, um, that uh, started, he will complete. And there are many passages that affirm the eternal security of the believer. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. If we are Christ's sheep, then we know him and we follow him. Following him is a mark of conversion. And then he says, I give eternal life. It's not something we earn. He says, I give eternal life to them and they shall never perish. No one shall snatch them. My father who's given them to me, he'll go on to say is greater than all. No one shall snatch them out of my father's hand. And I and the father are one. So God holds on to us. We don't hold on to him. But in the whole movement that came out of the Azusa Street Revival that gave you the Church of God, Tennessee, Church of God, Cleveland, Assemblies of God, and and I don't want to totally broad brush uh, the people in those denominations, so it's true 99% of the time. The Scripture is very, very clear that not everyone, um, and excuse me, that not everyone who professes Christ knows Christ. And so what they do, because they put such a big premium on experiential theology, is they do theology by experience. And they'll say, well, clearly you can lose your salvation. Assemblies of God would be included in this too. But again, there is exceptions to the rule. Um, most charismatic Pentecostals, uh, you know, believe you can lose your salvation. But again, there's always exceptions to the rule where you might walk into an Assemblies of God church and the pastor actually believes in the eternal security. So he's going against his denominational teaching through his own personal study of Scripture. But because they do theology by experience, they'll say, well, look at Joe Schmo. You know, he was once a member of our church, even, you know, shared a testimony on a Wednesday night and would invite people and serve. But now he's a Buddhist and totally rejects Christianity. Was he saved? No, he was never saved to begin with. That's what 1 John 2.19 teaches, that there will be people who come into the church who look Christian, walk Christian, talk Christian, but they're not Christian. Uh, they are basically apostates. They are those who on the outside confess Christ, but on the inside have never truly possessed him. And that's what John affirms here. He said, they went out from us, but they were not really of us. How do we know that? Because he says, if they had been of us, if they were truly born again, 
members of the family of God, they would have remained with us, but they went out so that it would be shown that they all are not of us. In other words, if you have salvation, you cannot lose salvation. You might lose your intimacy with God. You might lose your fellowship with God, but you will never renounce Christ and walk away from the faith. Such people have never truly, genuinely been saved. Uh, Again, this principle is affirmed uh, earlier in the Gospel of John, and this is like there's no leakage at all in this teaching when Jesus says in John 6, 37, all, all means all, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. In other words, there's not some sin that you can commit by which God will say, "Uh uh-oh, that was not a little boo-boo to use your theological term. That's a major sin. You're done. For I've come down from heaven, not to do my own will, Jesus said, but the will of him, the Father who sent me. Well, what is the will of the Father who sent you? This is the will of him who sent me, that of all he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. Notice again, no leakage. All that he has received, he loses not a one, but raises that person up on the last day. Speaking of the future resurrection. For this is the will of my Father. And again, Jesus didn't come to break the will of the Father. He just said he came to do the will of the Father. For this is the will of my Father that everyone, without exception, who beholds the Son and believes in him, that's conversion, will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. So again, there's no leakage. There are dozens of passages that speak to the eternal security of the believer. You might want to listen to my series at... um, searchthescriptures.org. It's called Back to Basics. And you'd want to listen to Back to Basics Session 1. It's uh, approximately three hours of teaching. So uh, that first handout that deals with assurance in the eternal security of the believer. Uh, I, I deal with a number of different verses and problems that have been created by the doctrine of eternal security. Some have reasoned, well, you know, I'm saved and I'm going to heaven, therefore I can live like the devil. No, the Bible would say uh, those who are saved, they're interested in learning the things that please God. They've passed out of life into death um, as seen by the fact that they love God's people and so forth. And so there's a general pattern by which you can know them by their fruit. And if that's not true in a person's life, it's usually just a false profession. But again, um, by the way, this is the very message I'll be dealing with this Sunday as we continue our study of the book of Revelation. We'll look at the lifestyle of the saved. Now, in the text that we'll be examining, he'll be looking at tribulation saints, but the principle is the same in whatever age, whether it's King David or uh, whether it's uh, a New Testament church saint or a tribulation saint. Saints are saints, those who've been set apart, declared holy, not on the basis of their own human merit, but on the basis of the grace of God. Uh, Clearly, uh, there is a pattern that will uh, show that they have met the living God. So you, you don't get salvation and lose it where you're unborn again. And then, well, you get saved again where you're born again, again. And then maybe you lose it again, and then you're born again, again. Look, just like there's one physical birth, there is only one spiritual birth. So it is bad doctrine. It's false doctrine. And I'll tell you, in essence, this is what most people hear who go to those kinds of churches, that if you can do something to earn your salvation, 
then you can just as easily do something to lose your salvation. Or if you can do something to lose your salvation, then you have to do something to earn your salvation, and the grace of God is muddied. And that's why when this doctrine was uh, came to the surface during the time of the Reformation, in defiance of all the major Protestant reformers, it was viewed as heresy. They saw it as a, an aberrant view to the teaching of salvation by grace alone through faith alone. A grace without any human merit, faith without any human works, totally on the basis of Christ, death, burial, and resurrection, period. Now, the faith that saves, we're saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. The byproduct, the fruit of genuine conversion is that you will follow Christ. So when I see someone visit, say, Community Bible Church, and I get a dialogue with them, oh, well, tell me, how did you grow up? Oh, I grew up Church of God, or I grew up Assemblies of God. I can usually flip a coin 50-50, that they understand salvation by grace alone through faith alone. Uh, It's usually about half who don't even understand the gospel and are still lost because, remember, understanding precedes conversion. And if you think that works help save, and that's what, in essence, the formula that is formed in a person's theology that will surface through this bad teaching, they'll basically say, faith in Jesus Christ, they won't deny his death, burial, and resurrection, plus the good works you do will equal or secure salvation. And that's why very often in these churches, if you ask a person on a scale of zero to 100 how sure they are, they're not sure. Or if they say they're 100, very often they'll bring works into the picture because they think it's faith plus works that saves, where the biblical formula would be more like Faith in Christ alone equals salvation plus good works, where good works are the byproduct, the fruit of conversion, but not the means to it. Does that help? Yes, sir, Plenty. <laughs> do, you, do you have a follow-up or any question there? So you might, um, you might want to go uh, to searchthescriptures.org and listen to the first handout, as we call it. We, we have a class called the discovery class at Community Bible Church. It takes about 45 weeks for people to go through. And there's handouts for every session. And the first handout is the eternal security of the believer, assurance and the eternal security. And those are two different doctrines. In other words, uh, some in the Church of God, Cleveland, Tennessee, or wherever, would say, well, I know I'm going to heaven today. I may not know that next week or next year, but I know it today. And so while they teach assurance of salvation, they do not teach eternal security. And the Bible affirms both. Not only can I be assured, I can know that I am eternally secure. And not to teach eternal security has great ramifications. And uh, it's really a a, a shortcoming of of doctrine. All right, caller. Well, thanks so much for calling this point. All right. Thank you. God bless you. Bye-bye. Well, you've answered the next question, um, about 80% of it, but maybe you'd like to add another 20%. A caller who lives in Aiken and has been invited to a Church of God service is wondering if you can tell him if this denomination is secure in doctrine and in line with what the Bible teaches. Well, again, even under Church of God, there's different uh, stripes, like uh, there's uh, the United Pentecostal Church that affirms the unity of God, but denies its triunity. Uh, so they deny the doctrine of the Trinity and so forth. So 
again, it depends on the particular church of God that you're in, but as a general principle, the church of God, and there's always exceptions to the rule, but as a general principle, the church of God, one, denies the doctrine of eternal security. To me, that's a real problem. And if you're raising your children up under that false doctrine, that is not healthy for your family and for your children. You say, well, if we teach eternal security, that will be an impetus for them to do wrong. No, just the opposite. Um, you know, sometimes I'll tell a person well, uh, who will say, well, if I believed in the doctrine of eternal security, I would just, you know, go and sin all I wanted to sin. And then I'll say, well, I sin all I want to sin, but I don't want to sin anymore because I have a new nature that propels me to want to please God. And that's what Paul says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. Christ died for all, so he brought salvation not for some men, not just for the elect, for a limited group, as some are teaching today. He brought it for all men, but that does not imply universalism. You still have to receive that salvation. And that's his point in Romans 5, just like Adam's sin resulted in condemnation to all men. Through one man, there was an effect on the entire human race. Even so, through a second Adam, through one man, the Lord Jesus, the God-man, his one act had ramifications also on the whole human race. He brought salvation to all. But then the next verse says, instructing us. So he goes from all men to us, it's a, a first-person plural pronoun. Paul's including himself and all believers that he is writing to, uh, those who've received this grace, and instructs us to do what? To deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. That's what encounter with grace does, and that's why we need to grow in grace. We're saved by grace, but Second Peter says, grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ. How are you going to grow in grace? Well, you've got to learn God's word. You have to study the word of God, the Bible. So lay that aside, the doctrine of eternal security. In the church of God also, there's a lot of false doctrine on ongoing revelation. They basically, in practice, have an open canon. So someone will, quote-unquote, prophesy in church, speak a word from God. Uh, Someone will have a revelation And basically what they are saying is, thus saith the Lord. And they do this in a variety of ways, if they do it at all. But sometimes someone will speak in a tongue and someone will supposedly translate it. I always find interesting that the length of the tongue and the translation uh, never seem to match. Not to mention, if we were to tape that tongue and give it to anyone else who supposedly had the gift of interpretation... We put them in separate rooms. We could put 50 people who claim to have the gift of interpretation and 50 people who claim to have the gift of tongues and have them listen to each tongue. You wouldn't get the same interpretation. Why? Because there, uh, those gifts are not being given today. Those were first century gifts as the church was being formed and there was a need for people to be recipients of direct revelation from God because the Bible was still being written And God didn't leave his people without direction. But now the canon is closed. We don't have an open canon. God is not still giving new revelation. We have all the revelation that we need. 
By the way, I covered this issue on tongues and interpretation of tongues and some of the claims that some of our, and again, some of them are our brethren, just like, you know, there are born-again Baptists, there are some Baptists who are lost, and some in the Church of God who are genuinely born again, and some who are lost. I, I don't have enough fingers and toes to tell you how many people I've witnessed to who have spoken in a tongue, some who have even claimed they had the gift of interpretation, and they were lost. How did I know? They didn't understand salvation by grace alone through faith alone. So I asked them, why should God let you into heaven? Well, I believe in God or I believe in Jesus and I've spoken in tongues and I'm living a good life. That's the answer of a lost person. That's not the answer of a saved person. That's not the answer of a born again person. And the Bible is very clear that understanding precedes genuine belief. And you don't have to be a great theologian. The gospel is simple enough. A child can get it. But you do have to know that you're a sinner, your sin separates you, and there's zero that you can do to fix the problem. Absolutely nothing, that you are bankrupt, and your only hope is the gospel. Remember, Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God to save. Well, what is the gospel? That Christ died for our sins, was buried, and was raised in the first day. He defines it for us in 1 Corinthians 15 in the opening verses of that chapter. So if you add anything, even one thing. Look, there's a book in the New Testament where they added one thing to the plan of salvation. And Paul said, that's another gospel. That's a different gospel. And if someone preaches another gospel, they are to be accursed. Very good. 843-525-1859. If you have a question on today's Bible line and Leonardo from Enfield, Connecticut writes, I'm studying the book of Revelation with you. I'm in the eighth chapter, and uh, you are, uh, let's see here, if I can widen this a little bit, making a parallel with Matthew 24 and verse 6, where Jesus tells them uh, not to be frightened if he is talking to Christians, and I assume he is. Why would they be frightened if they would be in heaven at this point? Well, it's a good question, but remember, the people who are in the eighth chapter that are being addressed are tribulation saints. The fact is, is that they are not in heaven at this point. In Matthew chapter 24 is looking down the corridors of time based on the question that is asked. They had left the temple buildings and they're sitting on the Mount of Olives. And again, some of you may go with me to Israel in September 2019. If you have interest in that, go to searchthescriptures.org. I have a little two-minute commercial or so that you can watch, but you can also download the brochure And if you want to apply to go on the trip, it will be a trip of a lifetime. But we will sit on the Mount of Olives. And when you're sitting on the Mount of Olives, directly across is a perfect visual view of the Temple Mount. And that's where Solomon's Temple was. That's where the Zerubbabel Temple was. And the one that was updated by Herod the Great, uh, that's the Temple Mount that in 70 AD, the Romans totally destroyed that temple, and that's where the next temple, the third temple, will be built. So they're looking at the Temple Mount and from the Mount of Olives, and the disciples say, tell us, when will these things happen? What will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And then Jesus begins to answer, see to it that no one misleads you. And so if you study Matthew 24, 4 through 14, as I bring out, 
in the series of seal judgments, it perfectly parallels the six, the first six seals, and it's not by accident. So when he speaks of wars and rumors of wars, earthquakes, and so on and so forth, the gospel going out to the whole world, he's speaking about the first three and a half years of the coming tribulation period. Then when you come to verse 15, he deals with the midpoint of the tribulation. We know it from Daniel 9. We know it from uh, 2 Thessalonians 2. We know it from the Revelation. We know it from the Sermon on the Mount that right in the middle of the tribulation, in the middle of the 70th week, Daniel tells us what Jesus reaffirms here. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, let the reader understand the abomination of desolation, that Daniel the prophet, by the way, not Daniel the historian, Jesus saw him as a prophet. The liberal scholars of our day say he's a historian, that the book of Daniel was written after the fact. They, for uh, almost 100 years, argued that it was a second century A.D. work, Now they argue it's a second century B.C. work, and they couldn't get around that because of the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls, where like the book of Isaiah, we found a complete copy of the book of Daniel, and the dating is firm that it's two centuries before Christ. Well, with that said, Daniel writes of prophecies like in Daniel 11 that will be fulfilled during the intertestament period between Matthew and Malachi. And indeed, that's what happened. So he writes even prophecy that's fulfilled during that time frame that shows it's a supernatural work, not to mention the great 70th week prophecy of Daniel 9. And he deals with the first 69 weeks and then the 70th week. And it's not a week of days, but it's a week of years. Jews have not just a week of days like we have. We speak of a week usually in English of a seven-day thing. But there's also a week of years, and that's precisely what Daniel the prophet is addressing. So with that said, uh, Daniel uh, says that in the middle of that 70th week, the abomination of desolation will take place. Then when you begin in verse 17, he deals with the second half all the way into the physical return of Christ from heaven. So I'm drawing that parallel in Daniel 8 with the uh, sealed judgments that parallel what you find in the first half of the Olivet Discourse. So the people that he is addressing in Matthew 24 is not the church. The church has already been removed there in heaven, and we see that in Revelation 4, where there's a door open in heaven, and there's 24 elders. It's interesting. There are three throne room, three throne room descriptions in the Bible. And in two of the throne room descriptions by Daniel and Isaiah, they are identical. In the third throne room description, there's a distinction, and the distinction concerns 24 elders. They are not there in Daniel's vision of the throne room, nor in Isaiah's throne room. Why? Because the church is a New Testament entity. That's what the New Testament reveals. It didn't exist in the Old Testament It started on the day of Pentecost, and it is removed prior to the 70th week where God will go back and deal in those final seven years, a time we typically refer to as the Great Tribulation period. Uh, It will 
in the Old Testament is called the time of Jacob's trouble. And one of the designs of the seven-year period is to bring Israel to genuine conversion in Christ. So the church is removed. And so there will be people studying Revelation uh, during this seven-year period. And I guarantee they'll be pouring over Matthew 24 and 25 because they will be reading of the events that will be happening to them. And they'll say, well, look, we just came through this and we know what the next event is. And we know what's going to happen precisely next. So, um, again, these are, these are important truths. So uh, don't be frightened because, again, he's dealing with the Jewish people. The, the church is not in Matthew 24. One will be taken, one will be left. Hal Lindsey came up with the, he was the first one to come up and say, well, that, that, that referred to the rapture. It doesn't refer to the rapture. He went to the same seminary I did in all of the professors he said under criticized him when he came up with that interpretation. It's dealing with the same parallel that's given by typing illustration with Noah's day, where Noah and his family were left to enter into a brand new world and the rest were carried away in judgment through the great flood. And that's a picture of what will happen at the end of the tribulation. When Jesus comes back, people will be taken away in judgment and those who are genuine believers will be left on the earth to enter into the millennial reign of the Messiah. So that's not to say that there's not benefit in studying Matthew 24 or Revelation, because remember, Revelation was initially given to the seven churches. There's great benefit. Number one, God wants us to know the future, and he's not only given us the starting point when he made the heavens and the earth approximately 6,000 years ago, but he's giving us the ending point and that how things will unfold. And there's a lot of principles that run all the way through the Revelation that would have been great encouragement to the saints in that day, just as they are in our day. Very often I'll finish a sermon in Revelation, and I'll say, well, let's apply it to us today, because while this is dealing, once you get into chapter 4 through 22 with a future time, it has great application for today as well, because all Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable and it's given for our instruction. So um, so that they won't need to be afraid um, in Matthew 24 because God is in control, he's sovereign, uh, and he is a dealing with the tribulation saints and what will happen. And, you know, those who are in Judea, not those who are in Dallas, he, he chose Judea for a reason, you know, flee to the wilderness and so forth because he's dealing with Jewish people who are going to be pouring over these books at this time. All right, very good. 843-525-1859. And uh, Michael from Ridgeland writes, several weeks ago, my mom accidentally got both of her feet severely burned while hauling leaves in a wheelbarrow, taking them to the fire that my dad had set. After several trips to the doctor, my mom was sent to a burn specialist. Later on, she crossed paths with a family friend who suggested that my mom see someone that could Talk the fire out of her burn. I've heard of this practice, and I was a little leery of my mom doing this, fearing that this may be an occult practice. Is it? What do you know about this? Incidentally, my mom took me to someone that could talk the fire out of my burn whenever I was a small child. Have you read the book of Jasher? This is a second question, and if so, is it a reliable source? I read the first 11 chapters online. Some of the information seems to line up with the biblical account of Genesis, while some of it seems far-fetched. What's your opinion of this book? And then they've got a third question. We'll hit that in a minute. 
Well, there's uh, just um, a lot of questions there, but what you're referring to, and again, this is this open canon where God speaks directly, and this is becoming popular now amongst evangelicals. Understand the term evangelical means a lot of things today. I'm not sure it represents much anymore because things are changing, but there was a time when people spoke of the body of Christ largely in terms of Pentecostals and evangelicals. And the evangelical community was divided from Pentecostals because of their view on an open canon and the expression of that open canon where God would directly prophesy through a person as he did in the Old Testament or in the founding of the church or where he would speak through someone in tongues or through a word of knowledge. And so, you know, I used to watch Pat Robinson on TV and and now, you know, you've got the same thing going on with Jesus Calling. You know, there was a book written, Jesus Calling, and if it's a terrible book. It's absolutely horrific. Uh, I noticed in the most recent edition, they took the introduction out. Maybe because they got a lot, maybe, maybe people read my review on the introduction. I don't know. It's been online for about 10 years. It's searchthescripture.org. But, you know, you've got this lady who you know, puts God's words directly into her mouth. Beth Moore, who's also associated with, you know, Kenneth Copeland and uh, some of these other, I just hate to say wackos, but that's what they are. They misrepresent biblical Christianity. And it's really a sham and a shame. And now Beth Moore, you know, has moved into total you know, egalitarianism, and she's going to speak at a conference, and as she's been doing for some years now, in mixed audiences in Dallas, um, and there's all kinds of rationale and reasoning she uses, but it's just wrong. But, you know, Pat Robinson would be there. You know, God's telling me right now there's a person out there with a, 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 a kidney problem, and as I speak, your kidney is being healed, and oh, wait a minute, wait a minute, he gets these text messages from God, you know, and uh, there's someone out there whose left toe is swollen. Well, you know, if you got 4 million people listening, it's probably someone out there with a left toe that's swollen. God is touching your toe right now, and your toe is being healed, and you know, that's just dangerous. That is just bad, bad theology. And Pat Robinson was ripped off the body of Christ like few people did. He established that 700 Club, and God's people gave wanting Christian broadcasting. And honestly, there was a there was a broad range of people who were on there. Sometimes you'd have someone like John Ankelberg, who was you know conservative, Bible believing apologist, and and then you'd have some you know wacko person on there who said that they were caught up into the throne room of God and had a conversation with Jesus in heaven and then came back. But at least you had some evangelical theology in there. And and so what did that mean? It meant a lot of God's people gave. And then he decided, well, we're going we're gonna to make this the family channel. And so he kind of mixed it in with uh, the 700 Club and other things. And then he decided to sell the thing for $1.8 billion that didn't go to the body of Christ who gave sacrificially, but it went to him. This is the biggest scam and ripoff in evangelicalism. It's just a, it's a, a tragedy. Um, but his theology is dangerous, very, very dangerous. So um, you're right, you know, in terms of, you know, no one's going to speak the 
fire out of your mother's feet. You know, if she's got burns, then she, you know, God could supernaturally heal her if he so chose, but, you know, he doesn't always choose that. Paul told Timothy, who has probably taken a Nazarite vow and is a traveling pastor, would be exposed to all kinds of different water to take a little wine for your frequent illnesses. And no doubt a reference to mixing wine with water and to forego the Nazarite vow so that he could indeed uh, have good health because he was having stomach problems. You know, Epaphroditus got sick to the point of death. Well, Paul, why don't you just heal him and lay hands on him? You loved Epaphroditus because it wasn't God's plan to supernaturally heal Epaphroditus. You know, sometimes, though, we seek the doctors and we leave God out of it. That's what King Asa did, right? He was... Uh, had a foot problem, kind of like your mother, and he sought the physicians to the exclusion of God. And sometimes we go to a doctor, just give me the prescription, and we have more faith in the prescription than we have in God who gave man the ability to make the prescription and God who designed the human body who can use the prescription to heal us. Or we could be like King Hezekiah who sought the Lord And then God chose to use medical means and was pleased and extended his life another 15 years. So God's not against medicine, and maybe the best thing your mom can do is to get the best medical treatment she can find. And and we enjoy varying degrees of medicine in this country, uh, and uh, some places better than others, but overall it's the best in the world. And we, we as Americans, we don't see that God blessed us the way he did because we honored him, and now we're dishonoring him. But lay that aside. Um, you know, your your mom should pray and seek the Lord and ask God for help, but seek medical means in the process. Now, God wants to supernaturally heal her. He can. The book of Jashir, that's an interesting question, and I cover this in my, um, in my series on bibliology. And I think I cover it in session five, where I deal with Test for canonicity. Uh, the book of Jashir is quoted in the Bible in two occasions, one in Joshua 10. Let me read the Joshua account. Then Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord delivered up the Amorites before the sons of Israel. And he said in the sight of Israel, O sun, stand still at Gibeon, and O moon in the valley of Ijalon. We'll go to Gibeon. If you go with me to Israel, you'll see the very place where this happened. So the sun stood still and the moon stopped until the nation avenged themselves of their enemies. Then he asked, is it not written in the book of Jashir? And the sun stopped in the middle of the sky and did not hasten to go down about a whole day. So um, the book of Jashir, it's called Jashir, in the Hebrew means righteous or upright. So it's given by different names. It's titled differently in the um, in the Septuagint. They refer to this as the book of the righteous uh, in the Latin Vulgate. Uh, I think it's called the book of the upright. Don't quote me on the Vulgate. But again, the same word in the Hebrew Bible. Uh, it's Yashir, and we just transliterate it, but it's a Hebrew word that means upright or just. And it's quoted here. And by the way, David also quotes the book. Where is the book today? It does not exist. Now, there is a book called the Book of Jashir that was produced in the 18th century. It was a forgery. It's not the same book that was written. 
But nonetheless, the book of Jashir is not a part of the canon of Scripture. So why would God quote the book of Jashir? Well, remember, they they lived in a day when they interacted with uh, the cultures around them. And so Joshua, in essence, in recording the book of Jashir, is saying, look, if you don't believe what I'm saying, read the book of Jashir. They even wrote about it. This was a remarkable supernatural miracle that they even wrote about it. Uh, You see the same kind of intersection in the New Testament. Paul, when he writes about the Cretans in Titus chapter 1, he quotes the poet Epimenides. Uh, Also in the Acts of the Apostles in Acts 17, he quotes a popular poet of the day. Why? Because he's relating to the culture. In the Hebrew Bible, uh, the Bible affirms the triunity of God, that there's only one God, but it will name some of the gods that the pagans around them literally worshipped. God, in quoting these sources, is not saying that this should be believed, that these are books that should be trusted. He, however, is just simply making a fact uh, or communicating the truth under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. When when Paul quotes a, a poet, he's not saying that everything this poet wrote is true, but when he says, in him we live and breathe and find our being, you know, that's the truth. That's a biblical truth. And, th- and that poet um, taught that truth. He, he understood general revelation as quoted there in the book of Acts. And so Paul, he's speaking to pagans. He says, look, even one of your poets, one of your most famous poets that you all esteem, affirm that there's one God who created us and so forth. But the book of Jashir doesn't exist today. Uh, God didn't include it in the canon of Scripture. And by the way, again, in that course on bibliology, we we go through, well, why are the books included that are included? And I go through five tests for canonicity. Uh, It's written by a prophet of God. Uh, It's consistent with things that God wrote previously, unlike, say, 2 Maccabees that we quoted earlier, where people prayed for the dead and made atonement for the dead. Uh, It has a life-changing effect for godliness, not only in conversion as living seed, but in spiritual growth. It was recognized by God's people. So I go through these various tests of canonicity for the Word of God. Well, the time is out. Let me just give a plug. Tomorrow is a new season of woman's life. It begins tomorrow, Wednesday, here at Community Bible Church, and people are coming from Savannah and all over It will meet five Wednesdays in a row. So instead of flip-flopping the second and fourth Wednesday, five Wednesdays in a row this fall, and the theme is building boys. It's going to deal with how do you raise men to be mighty warriors for the living God. You don't want to miss it. If you can't come to the day session, the evening session will follow on the Monday, and that will meet on both of our campuses on the Bluffton Hilton Head campus as well as on the Buford campus, uh, I should say four Wednesdays in the fall. Uh, So four Wednesdays in a row. I think it's five in the spring. So anyway, we're out of time, but thanks for joining us today for the Bible Line. 